in the Bible today, the book of Ephesians, chapter number five, if you would turn there with me. And the subject today is guiding principles. Guiding principles, Ephesians chapter five. And as soon as you find it, please stand with me if you will. Ephesians chapter five and verse number 23. Ephesians five and 23. This passage of scripture is typically read at uh, weddings, and it's read to, in series of messages where we're teaching on marriage, but there's a parallel teaching in this that's just as prominent as the one on marriage, and that is the relationship between Christ and the church, and that's what I'll be speaking about this morning. Ephesians 5 and 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Verse 32, and this is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. Thank you, and you may be seated. Last Sunday night, I spoke on this same passage, and I called it the doctrine that God used to call me into the ministry. I never had any intention growing up that I would be a pastor, that God would use me to preach. And I thought about it from time to time. I even felt like that that might happen to me, but I didn't want to do it. I was, a, I was reluctantly called to the ministry. And then I moved to Texas, and there in a great church, My pastor at that time became a friend of mine, and he taught me the doctrine of the local New Testament church. And very honestly, in two Bible colleges and growing up, I'd heard very, very little about it. And I began to see the importance of the local church in the economy of God, in God's plan. I came to believe that God's primary work in this dispensation would be done not by parachurch organizations, but by the local New Testament church. I came to believe that deeply, deeply in my heart. I still believe it today. That flame has never diminished in my thinking. And one of the key passages that teach that is the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Here the passage that we've just read. Now, Many people today believe that the most important thing is this universal, invisible group of people that are related around the world because they simply have faith in Christ. My belief is that God's primary place where he's working today is not in a universal, mystical, and spiritual concept of the church but in a local church, in a gathering of God's people, a, an assembly, a congregation of God's people, just like 
is right here this morning, a gathered group of redeemed and baptized people. Well, everything that the Bible here says about Christ and his relationship to his church can be said about Christ and his relationship to the Florence Baptist Temple. So this is where this gets very, very practical. Note with me in verse number 23, it says, Christ is the head of the church. Now, most people today outside of Baptist realms and very uh, few other people, they would say that's that universal invisible, or they call it the true church. I would say that that refers to all churches in general. It even refers to the Florence Baptist Temple, and I would read that like this. Christ is the head of Florence Baptist Temple, a local church. Now, is he the head? Well, sure he is. And I'll show you in a moment why I say that. In verse number 24, it says the church is to be subject to Jesus Christ. Is the Florence Baptist Temple to be subject to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. He is the ultimate authority around here, is he not? And then in verse 25, it says that Christ loved the church. Well, is that talking about an invisible universal body, or is that also, is that talking about the Florence Baptist Temple? Does Christ love the Florence Baptist Temple? I don't mean the building. I don't mean the program. I mean the gathered assembly of God's people here today. Does Christ love that? Absolutely. <laughs> if you don't believe that, well, we are in serious trouble, aren't we? And then in verse 25, it says that Jesus gave his life for the church. Well, he did. The people of the Florence Baptist Temple, you believe that Christ died for you, do you not? Absolutely. So he died for us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He even has a vision for our church. You know Jesus' vision for our church? Verse 27. He would like for our church to be without spot or wrinkle. That's Jesus' vision for Florence Baptist Temple, and every other church, any other church that chooses to follow him. So what does it mean that we be without spot or wrinkle? Well, spots would be dirty places, wouldn't it? It's talking about laundry here. And it's God's vision that our church be spotless, that it be clean, that it be pure, that it not be blemished. And secondly, without wrinkle. And so we iron our clothes, or we used to, and we send them to the laundry sometimes, and we want them to come back without wrinkles because wrinkles don't look nice to us. And in the same way, the Lord wants His church to be clean and laundered. He wants it to be pure, and He wants it to be unwrinkled. And so when we live contrary to His Word, why, we wrinkle it, don't we? And so this is his vision for our church right here. Now, here's how I view our church. Here's how I view any local church that commits itself to this plan. And I want you to really get this because you come here often. You spend a lot of time. You spend a lot of money. You put a lot of heart into this place. So let's think about it very, very biblically here today as I've done so far. And here's how I see each church and this church, I see us not as an 
organization. I see us not as an institution. I see us not as a place where we're just grinding out these programs week after week and holding Sunday school and RU and, and having a school and operating a bunch of programs. You know, all of that is true, but that does not excite me one bit. You know what turns me on? What lights my fire? Which gets, what gets my juices going? Here's what it is in a nutshell. I believe the local church is the cause of Jesus Christ on the earth today. I believe that cause is sprinkled around the world wherever there is a group of born-again, baptized people under the discipline and the authority, the Word of God. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ meets with those people, and when they go out to carry out the Great Commission, He puts His hand of power and blessing upon them, and that His cause is not entrusted to every believer who wants to participate in whatever way he or she wishes, I believe the cause of Jesus Christ rests in the assemblies of God's people across the earth. And that if we fail, His cause fails. And if we succeed, His cause succeeds. I am so committed to that, that turned my life around. Once I discovered that, I made my decision to be in the ministry on this basis. Where could I spend my life and it have as much impact and as much influence? Where could I do the greatest amount of good with my life? Where could I go than think of anything that I could do that would be more important than advancing the cause of Christ through a local church? And so God led me ultimately to Florence. And I've advocated for that position, taught that position, preached that position. I'm passionate about that position today after 50 years as much as I was the day I moved into town. What God is going to do, He's going to do through His churches. And if our churches fail, the cause of Christ will also go down with them. We cannot succeed with just a generalized approach we have got to have every local church functioning biblically, carrying on the cause of Jesus Christ until he returns. And so to our entire leadership today, to the deacons who are here, and to the Sunday school teachers who are here, and to every person who has your heart in this church, you believe in what we're doing here, I want to offer you some guiding principles. In fact, I only want to give you three, and I know you can remember them. Because you're an intelligent audience, aren't you? So I want you to maybe write them down and jot them down. And, and uh, 40 years from now, some of you younger people will be here. I want you to say, these are the guiding principles. I heard Brother Bill preach about that one day. I never, and he, he said, let's don't ever move our church away from these principles. These principles will guide us to please the Lord. Number one is our purpose here is to exalt the Savior, is to exalt the Savior. That's a guiding principle. Every local church ought to be absolutely committed to exalting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn over to the right with me. You're in Ephesians. Turn over to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And here you'll find one of the most remarkable passages in all the Scripture on Jesus Christ, on who He is and what He is. And in this passage, you're going to see why I say that a primary mission 
purpose, a guiding principle of every local church is to exalt the Savior. Let's look in verse number 18. Here's what the Bible says. And he, speaking of Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. And the church, the body is often used as a metaphor, for an illustration of of the, uh, uh, of the, it uses a human body as the metaphor for the church. So you can say the church is a body. And so we're the body. And we come up to about right here. Look here. You're all looking down at your Bible. Okay, look right here. Here's the church from the ground up to here. And here's Jesus. Jesus is the head, the head of the church. What does that mean in a practical way? What well, means that the head controls the body. My head is going to tell my arm to move. Where'd that come from? A thought in my brain, and it directs my arm. And everything that you do or say is directed by the head, the brain specifically, but the head. And Jesus Christ is the head who controls the body, the congregation, the church, and everywhere across this world this morning where Christ is honored and obeyed, he is the head and the congregation becomes his body here in this localized assembly. And so the head does the thinking and the head does the planning and the head controls the body. And how does Jesus Christ do that? Well, he does that through his word. And so we met in Sunday school, and we opened up our Bibles today to the book of Psalms across the Sunday school. And what did we do? We studied the book of Psalms, and in the book of Psalms, it teaches us how to praise and honor and pray to the head. And right now, I open the Bible, and I'm preaching a message to you, and my point is that we exalt Jesus Christ. We honor Him in Everything that we do, every song that is sung, every message that is preached, every lesson that is taught, every activity that we hold around here, when we're on the ball field, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're in the schoolroom Monday through Friday at Florence Christian, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what the activity or the event our goal here is to bring glory and honor to him to exalt the Savior. And to the degree that we do that, he will honor us. Now, so he controls the body. Just like my brain, my head controls my body physically, Jesus, through his word, controls the body, which is his church. And look at the end of verse 18. It says he is to have the preeminence. He is to be the one most honored and glorified and exalted in every sense. A few years ago, we went to Washington, D.C. again, had a little visit up there and spent two or three days, and we saw all the sites, you know, went to the museums and the Smithsonian, the Capitol, and the, all those places. And then we decided we would go and spend a morning over at Mount Vernon on the way home. And so we went to Mount Vernon, of course, across the river from Washington and in northern Virginia there, and it's, the, and it's the home, of course, of George Washington. And so we're walking around, and we're with a guide. 
And what does the guide talk about at Mount Vernon? Did he talk about the house a whole lot? A little bit. Did he talk about the fields that stretched out there or the Potomac River that ran right down at the bottom of the yard there by the house? Some. You know what he talked about? He talked about who? George Washington. It was a four or five hour lecture on George Washington. And he went back into the background of Washington. His parents, he talked about them. He talked about him being a surveyor, a civil engineer. He talked about him being a major in the army and then a general. He talked about him being wounded and his horse shot out from under him at the Battle of Monongahalia and three bullet holes through his uniform, and yet he never got touched. He talked about him coming home and his writings, and he showed us some of his journals there that they had, and you could see his very handwriting. He told us about his children. He told us about his wife. He told us about we went into the bedroom where he slept. He showed us the bed in which he died. It was all about George Washington. It wasn't about his wife. It wasn't about his kids. It wasn't about the farm. It wasn't about the river. It was George Washington had the preeminence. And so when you come to church, what do you think we ought to talk about? We ought to talk about Jesus, shouldn't we? I know there was a big ball game somewhere yesterday. Shame on us if we talk more about that and we talk about Jesus. I know there's a hurricane coming, but you know what? The hurricane is in the palm of his hand, and I want to tell you something today. Shame on us if we talk more about the hurricane. We come to church to make Jesus exalted and preeminent, ladies and gentlemen. That's the only reason that we really come when you boil it all down. And isn't it strange that we stand around and we talk about other things more and we talk about him so much of the time? Now, why do we exalt him like we do? Well, this passage tells you. Here's the reasoning behind that in verse number 14. We exalt Jesus because he has redeemed us. You see that there we have redemption through his blood. Has there anybody else ever suffered pain and poured out their blood for you to live? and to have forgiveness of your sins so that you can stand here and sing, it is well with my soul? No, nobody's ever done that for you. And so we exalt him because he redeemed us. Look in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The image. I look in the mirror. I see my image, an exact replica. Why do we talk about Jesus? Because he is God. He is God in human flesh. He is the supreme being. He is deserving of all the honor that can ever be given him. We exalt him because he is God. Notice in verse number 16, he is the creator. He created us. That's why evolution is such a terrible, terrible, evil thing in that it takes the glory of God who is our creator and it it denies that and it says that this is just a random thing that occurred through time and, and, and that God had nothing to do with the whole creation. No, we exalt Jesus because he is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. And look in verse 17, he is the one who sustains it all. I look it up at all those planets whirling around in the sky at night 
and wonder how could all those places stay on their course and how could they not be running into each other and exploding? How is it that people can tell you the tide table six months or a year or five years from now over at Myrtle Beach? How is it that all of these things are so orderly and they operate and they function as they do? It's because not only Jesus created them, he sustains them. That old song, he's got the whole world in his hands, that's not just a cute little song. That's a truism. He does have the world in his hands, and we exalt him because he redeemed us. He is our God. He is our creator. He sustains all things. And so every service, every song, every message, every event, every activity, Jesus ought to be the preeminent one, the one who gets the glory, the one who gets the honor. And when we leave here today, it's not just at the church that we glorify him. It's in our individual and personal lives. And so in whatever we do in life, no matter who it involves or where it is or what happens, we think as Christians before we act and before we speak. And we say, will this honor the Lord? Is this consistent with what Jesus would have me do? Would Jesus do this? And in every way, personally and corporately as a church, we want to exalt Christ. That's the first guiding principle. The second one is this. Go back to Ephesians with me, please. And be back here to your left, just a couple of pages. And let's go to chapter 4. And I want to read to you two verses here. He gave some, verse, chapter 4 and verse 11, he gave to some the gift of being an apostle and to some the gift of prophecy. He talks about the gifts up in verse 8 and 9. These are gifts that he gave to people for ministry. He gave some the gift of being an evangelist and to others, pastors and teachers. Why did he give those gifts to Christian leaders? For the perfecting, and you could write there over that word, the maturing, the maturing or the developing of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, to edify is to build up for the edifying of the body of Christ, that God called Christian leaders to minister to the congregations. This was written to a local church, the church at Ephesus. And God gave them leaders to build up, to edify, to strengthen the family of God, the congregation, the body of Christ, if you will, there in that local church. And so, number one guiding principle is exalt the Savior. The second one is equip the people. Now, think with me about our church. I'm preaching along this line because we're here in our 50th year. We're approaching our anniversary, and I just think it's a wonderful time for me to remind us of some old truths that are very, very important to us on which our ministry here has been built and sustained for these years. And so this is a reminder of things that maybe we already know, but they're very important. And think about the ministries of this church. Most of the ministries of this church are equipping ministries, and they should be. That's the way the Bible says. This is the purpose of us, of the ministry here, is to edify, to build up, 
to equip, if you will, to develop and mature the saints of God that compose the body of Christ. And so we have an RU ministry, for example. Now, think about RU like this. It equips people. It's an equipping ministry. And you say, what do you mean? Well, how does a person, a man or a woman living here in our area, who are addicted to drugs or to alcohol or to pornography or any of a dozen other sins, here's a person, they are addicted to some habit, some sinful practice. They cannot break that habit by themselves. Where do they go for help? How do they acquire victory? Well, they come to RU. And what do we do in RU? We equip them. We teach them. These are the things you're going to feel. These are the temptations you're going to run into. And when those things occur, here's the scriptures, and here's the techniques, and here's the way that you'll think, and you'll be able to someday have victory over this addiction that you have. See, it equips people who are addicted to overcome their addictions. Think of our Christian school. What is the role of Florence Christian School here? It is to equip children by giving them a biblical worldview so that those children will not be tossed to and fro throughout their life, will not understand the Christian faith. Think of our Sunday school. Most of you, 90% of you, went to Sunday school this morning. Why do you go to Sunday school here? What's the purpose of Sunday school? It is to teach the Word of God, to equip you in the doctrines, and to give you basic Bible knowledge that you need if you're going to understand the, 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 the Christian faith, if you will, to understand the workings of God in your life. We've just put an emphasis here on family ministry. And Kent Kendall is leading us through ministry to our families. And, and what's the purpose? It's to equip families to deal with the problems that families are facing in a culture that has so turned its back on the Lord. And so, number one guiding principle, in everything we want to exalt the Savior, but number two, we want to equip our people. Now, I really feel like at this point in my life, and my ministry, with all my heart, I believe we have entered a new era of time in America. And this is a holiday weekend, and we don't have the best crowd we've ever had, but I really want you to get a hold of this. This is my personal belief. I can't prove it because I can't prove the future. But I believe this with all my soul. In fact, I'll even be so personal as to tell you, I've had people say to me over and over, well, when do you plan to retire? I, I don't know if I ever will. And I, and I may not stay here forever. You know, uh, I, I, I heard about a preacher that they, he, he left his church, and somebody said uh, to him, well, why'd you leave? And he said, well, health reasons. And they said, well, what's wrong with your health? He said, they're sick of me. Well, you may get sick of me. I may have to leave, but right now I don't have any immediate plan. And those of you who are holding your breath, or you know, um, go, you're going you're gonna to gasp before this is over, I think. But I do want to tell you something. I'll tell you why I'm, why I'm here right now. Ten years past retirement. 
I believe that we've got a Category 5 storm coming. And I'm not talking about the hurricane. I'm talking about the persecution of God's people. And I'm trying to equip a great, great church to face that. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the storm is coming. How do you know the storm is coming? Your spiritual radar, it shows up on it. And the high winds of opposition and the hostility to Christianity and what's happening in our universities and colleges and what's happening in our general culture all tell me the hurricane is coming in America. The hurricane's coming. You, you may not believe it yet, but I'm, I'm studying this. Who would ever have thought that we lived at a time when there would no longer be the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts? Do you know the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts essentially don't exist today? Do you know why? By the way, I would say the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts were the single greatest teachers of morality in America outside of the church. How many of you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout? Okay, look at there. And what they teach you? They teach, they te- they teach you. <laughs> they taught you moral principles. They taught you how to be a young man and a young woman. Now, their name is not even Boy Scouts now. You do understand that, don't you? There's no such entity in America now legally as the Boy Scouts. Why? Well, because in this country we've decided, and I'm reading it now, it is sexist to exist as a gender-specific organization. So to call yourself a Boy Scout is sexist. You just have to be a scout. You know what you call that in Greek? Crazy. (laughs) Crazy. There was a Nazi martyr. He was a young man when he died. He was a priest. His name was Titus Bransma. The Nazis murdered him at Dachau in Poland, the concentration camp, on July 26, 1942. The statement of of his crimes was he opposed Nazi ideology. Titus Bransma made a speech before he died, or he wrote something, and he passed it on to some of his friends and followers. Here's what he said, and I quote, Those who want to win the world for Christ must have the courage to come into conflict with it. We are to take the light into the darkness. Do not yield to hatred. We are right now here in a dark tunnel, but we have to go on. But at the end, an eternal light is shining for us, end of quote. Titus Bransma saw the problem in Germany at that time. We're in a dark tunnel, but we see the light. We must go on. 
We can't back up. And our church is our cause. We must equip our people every single time we gather so that the cause of Jesus Christ will flourish among us. And there's a third guiding principle, and that is to evangelize the lost. I use the word evangelism a lot. You hear it. It's very common to you. Does it stir you? What does it do to you when I mention evangelize? What do you think of when you hear a preacher use the word evangelism? Do you know what evangelism is in simplest form? In fact, this is the literal definition of the word to evangelize. It means to proclaim the good news of salvation to unsaved people. To proclaim the good news of salvation to people who don't understand that, who've never been saved. If Jesus is our head and he instructs us through his word, what did he tell us the priority of evangelism is in his word? We said it very simply. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. That means the priority of every local church is evangelism. We too, like our Savior, must be seeking and saving lost people. And so if we turn inward and we only think about us, and if we minister to each other wonderfully, but we forget that outside those walls, there's a mission field out there. There's more lost people in Florence tonight or today than there was when I came to town 50 years ago. We're not even keeping up with the people that are here. And so the priority of evangelism is always upon us. It's upon every single local church. It was Jesus' priority. It must be our priority. D.L. Moody said one time, I see a big L on the forehead of every single person that I meet. And somebody said, what does that mean? He said, I consider them lost, capital L until they tell me otherwise, until I know that they're saved. Oh, we need that vision. We must never lose that vision that we see an L on people's head. We see people as needing the Lord Jesus Christ, lost in their sins until they know him. And until they can tell us otherwise, we want to give them the message of hope. You see... The good news of evangelism is the message of the cross. And before we close, I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible on the cross of Christ. And interestingly, it was written 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ even came to the earth. But here's a fulfilled prophecy, an evidence of the truth of God's Word. And in Isaiah 53, we have a description of Christ's suffering for us to earn us salvation. And in verse number four, notice what it says. It says, he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. In verse number five, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. Look in verse number six, the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. In verse number seven, it talks about him as being a sheep 
the sacrificial lamb and that he was our, our substitute sacrifice, if you will. He became the sacrifice for you and me for our sins. In verse number 8, he is stricken. That means they ball up their fists and they hit him and they hit him with rods. In verse number 10, his, he made his soul an offering for sin. In verse 11, he bore our iniquities. He says it again. In verse number 12, he bore the sins of many. And ladies and gentlemen, there wasn't one reason that he would do that except for the song that Sue sung. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus bore all that sin and all that suffering and all that shame because he wanted you and me he wanted it to be well with our soul. In about six weeks, seven weeks now, we're going to erect that sower that we've all given to and built this year. And the thing I really like about that statute that'll be out there beginning with our 50th anniversary day, it not only commemorates 50 years of God's blessing on us, but more importantly, more importantly, more importantly, I say, it reminds us every time we drive on this property or drive off of this property, it reminds us that as a church, we have a responsibility to evangelize, and we're sowing the seed, and we've been sowing it for 50 years, and by the grace of God, we'll keep on sowing it. And we'll not let anything that happens keep us from sowing that good news, that gospel seed. You see, many people are going to reject the seed. The parable tells us that. It falls on hard ground. It falls on rocky ground. It falls among thorns. But thank God there's some in every crowd that will accept it and will receive it. And so we keep on giving it out. And someday... I want it to be said of this church, they took the task seriously. They exalted the Savior. They equipped the saints. And they were true to the cause of evangelism. They evangelized the lost. Our heads are bowed.